0: wrecked me. After Jesus grabbed me, it started sounding a lot like, what can I do to help? Where can I invest? How can I be a part of this? And certainly a high mark of the gospel is us spending ourselves into others by taking responsibility for messes that we didn't even make. Now this is a key thing. A lot of people struggle with this, especially in their earlier years of Christianity. A high mark of maturity in the church is is taking responsibility for messes you didn't make. Owning things that you you didn't, that, that was not your bad. It always irks me, I get a little jilted still whenever I see celebrities or athletes or celebrity athletes of any kind that create a mess, a disaster, a dilemma. Maybe a video was shot of them or a picture was taken or a police report came out and the first thing you find them doing is shoveling the responsibility on somebody else. Very quick to say, not my bad. They're a victim all of a sudden. They've got a disease of some kind, or maybe they're just young and having fun. Maybe they miscommunicated. Maybe we took them out of context. But we exist in a culture today. We all agree on this. I know we do. We exist in a culture today where we're really good at making messes and then really good at putting them on other people to take care of because we have our own thing to watch out for. It's, it's our deal. I think the reason this bugs me so much when I see it on the news is because it's genetically in me, too. We're all like this. We're all really good at creating messes, but we're all not that great at owning them, taking responsibility, not just for our messes, but for the messes around us. It's in us genetically because it was passed down from Adam, our first father, right? Our original father back in the garden. He did some things. He said some things. Here is what he did not say. You won't find this in your Bible. Adam did not look at God and say, you know what? It's on me. It's on me. I created the mess here. There's a mess. We all agree on that, Lord. And I created it, right? I mean, technically, yes, she she had a part in it. She was complicit. Fruit came from her. I get that. But that's just a technicality. Realistically, I'm the leader here, right, God? I mean, you set me in. There are things I could have said. There are things I could have done. And I just didn't step up. My bad. It's on me. He doesn't say that. Because he doesn't say that, because of the failure just in general of mankind genetically for all of his people, for all of his family, meaning you and us, it would be genetically passed down to us to also make messes, not own them, and not take responsibility for any mess around us. That's why a second Adam came. We hear about this in Romans 5. This is why a second Adam came. And what does he say? It's on me it is on me. He didn't commit a mess. He didn't create a dilemma. He owned our collective dilemma and our mess. He said you did that it's your bad. But the gospel says it's it's on me, which is good news for us. We see this like I said in Romans 5, don't turn there, stay where you're at. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. I love this about Jesus. What makes Jesus the greatest servant of all time has really not as much to do with him washing feet and feeding people and healing people. Those were all huge marks. But what makes him the greatest servant of all kind is that he healed our souls, our crooked souls. And he washed our dirty souls, not just our feet. He was actually more thorough of a servant than he even showed in the Gospels. And his servants. His service to us leads us to serve each other. It leads us to serve each other. Today, I just want to look a little bit at a couple quick verses. You notice we're not doing very many today as we go through the book of Acts. But I want to look at how Jesus' people serve each other. We serve each other. Now listen, as a pastor and a communicator, this is super easy to preach. Easy sermon. They're not all easy, by the way. We get some hard texts. This one's not one of them. It's, an, it's a softball, as they say. Super hard to live, though. Very difficult to live. And if I could be totally honest with you just for a minute, this is a struggle for me, this passage on serving. I don't mind serving. I'm in a position of high leadership that serves. I'm always meeting with people and serving them. I'm always getting stuff ready to serve you. I'm, I'm in service all the time. It's hard because I'm not so sure my motives are always correct when I serve. And that's a big deal, right? Right? So, I've got a lot of growing to do here. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. By now, if you've been coming or listening this far into Acts, you should be noticing an explosion of the church. We actually looked at it numerically last week to try to capture your imagination a little bit to see how much it's blowing up. And even this passage starts off saying the church is increasing still. It's still increasing. But it's not increasing just numerically, it's actually increasing in its diversity. We see great ethnic diversity. People's skin colors are not looking the same. We see socioeconomic diversity, which means their paychecks are not looking the same, right? But we also see something that's real interesting. We see social enemies becoming friends. I would have liked to have seen this. Weeks and weeks before all of this happened, you had people firing each other and owing each other money and not paying up, and now they're worshiping in the same room. How awkward is that? how awkward is that they figured out how to do it even in this passage we see widows right that's the main character in this passage we see widows being added and then the last sentence shows us that priests are being added what you're seeing is great diversity you see the gospel is this brilliance of God it's a broom that sweeps all kinds of mismatched people together and it redraws our boundaries. So what is family looks a little bit different than it used to. What What friends are, it looks a little different than it used to. It redraws the lines and it connects us a little bit differently. And I love this. I love seeing this kind of church growth because I'm all about numbers. I'm not ashamed to say it. Those numbers represent people and souls and histories and needs. I'm all about the numbers. But I love the diversity as well. I love the explosion and the grit behind it. When I pray for Knoxville, I have this passage as one of the chief passages in my mind. I love this. I want to see this happen in our city. I mean, think about it. Why not? I mean, you think God loved ancient Jerusalem more than he loves Knoxville now? No. He's not riding the brake. He's not less interested in this. His mission is still marching on. You can pray for awakenings like this to happen in our city right now. You can pray for that. I mean, there have been awakenings that have happened in our country that far rival this one. Way more people than this. Just in our country's young history, it could happen today. Listen, when you pray for your city, and if you don't, please do, pray for your city, pray for your neighborhood, pray for your neighbors. Keep this in mind when you do it. Listen, pray for, let's do this. Let's just pray for our city. I want to show you how this feels, okay? Let's pray for our city real quick, and then we'll get back into this. Father, I thank you for your goodness to us. God, that you've called us to a beautiful city. This city is full of people who are jagged and hurting and crooked and needy, and they're looking for answers, and they're grasping, and every time they think they have found an answer, they end up throwing it away because it never really works. It never really meets that need that need to worship a king that you have implanted in them. And Father, we just ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would bring the dead to life here. Father, you build your church. You are the architect. You are the engineer. You are the builder. We are custodians. We we just serve amidst your grace swirling around us and reaching and recovering people. All we get to do is be a part of it. Father, not asking for legacy church to grow as much as I'm asking for your church in Knoxville to grow. Lord, reach your city. Reach the Morningside area. Reach Fourth and Gill, Old North. Reach far out in Farragut, Hardin Valley, West Hills, West Knoxville, Fountain City, Powell, Clinton. Father, we ask that you would reach this whole area, such a beautiful place, beautiful neighborhoods with beautiful people that are wrecked and need a king. Lord, that we would be a part of that. We love you. And we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I mean, listen, pray for your city, friends. Pray for your city. Pray for your neighborhood. Here's the caution, though. When the Holy Spirit gathers a movement, that movement gathers debris. Right. We actually get to see a little bit of this debris today. We get to see a little bit of communal funk raise its head. It's not because this is a bad church. It's because it's the every church. This is what every church looks like. You're never going to find a healthy church that's growing without this ooze and this funk come out eventually. The things that were super cool seven weeks ago aren't going to feel so cool seven weeks later. It just takes a while to notice them. The weird people, the difficult people, the bleeding people, the moochies, just the different kinds of people we bump into and we say, they're kind of ruining it for the whole picture. They're everywhere, especially in the healthy churches. Especially in the healthy churches. I love this. It's not because churches have weird or funky people. It's because we're all weird and funky people. If you really want to avoid the ooze and the debris, you have to never, ever go to a church, especially the healthy ones, especially the growing ones. Right? Be out of luck. In this passage, we see a little bit of the debris and the funk, and it looks a lot like racism to me. It looks like racism. At, at its best, it at least looks like hardcore bitterness going on. But now that people are living what we like to say life on life together, they start to smell each other. You can tell. It's about that time. You can tell. It's about two or three months in. They're starting to kind of... Look across the tracks and notice them for who they are. And in this case, we have two different groups of people. We have the Palestinian Jews, and we have the Grecian or the Hellenistic Jews, right? And they're different. They speak different languages, first of all. This is why I say racism, because their cultures are different, their language is different. They even worship in different places. They don't even have the same synagogue. There is a Greek synagogue in Jerusalem. There is a Palestinian or a Hebrew synagogue in Jerusalem. Right? The Palestinian Jews, they hold very firm to the law, much more so than the Greek Jews, but the Greek Jews kind of look across the tracks and they say, you guys are kind of self-centered, self-righteous, a little too narrow-minded. So there's this going on, right? That's what we have. It's not real complicated. The thing is, I would say when Jesus comes, and he does then what he is doing today in sweeping people with that broom I mentioned together in the gospel. It creates problems even though there's a lot of unity. There's, there's one spirit. There's one gospel. There's one fellowship. There's one baptism, right? There's one truth. Last week we saw that there was one heart and there was one mind, but there are a bunch of problems. And I think when it came time for these folks to start serving each other, it turned into middle school really fast real fast. They started smelling each other. Now it's your problem again. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, we love each other and we'll show up, but that is your problem because you're Palestinian or you're Greek. These are my peeps. Those are yours. Here's the sandbox. There's the line. It's really something that we still experience today. And in this case, some widows were not being served. This is about food and it's not about food all at the same time. It is much bigger than food. If the leadership cannot, leadership meaning Peter, John, and the gang, if they can't get their hands on the steering wheel driving this in the correct direction, then a lot more is at stake than you might realize just by reading this at face value. The picture of the gospel is potentially being dropped, scuffed, and kicked around. And a whole metropolis is watching with a very critical and careful eye. That's what we see going on right here. Paul talks about this a little bit in 1 Corinthians 12. You probably won't you probably won't have this brother for the screen. That there may be no division in the body. Paul says, but that that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Could you imagine what would happen if they blew this up? If Peter and John walked in and the gang and they heard about the the fact that some widows weren't being served that they just looked at it and went wow well that's not really a big deal I've got like big problems that's not one of them so I'm going to move on you guys figure that out I'm sure you guys can figure that out we'll, we'll talk to you later if that had happened it would have been very easy for your average person walking around on the streets of Jerusalem to look on and say Jesus huh <laughs> church huh wow I mean, you guys can't even take care of the most vulnerable of you. That's what the widow was. You guys can't even take care of those who have the deepest need. Church, y'all been talking about gospel all the time. How the gospel changes and the gospel does this. But it seems to me that as soon as the, the flaming tongues leave and all the weird languages leave, then all we've got left is staring at each other thinking the gospel's going to work and it's not working. You guys look just like us. You see how it's changing the way the gospel looks to the city. Not only were widows being dropped, the gospel's reputation is risking being dropped right now. Serving tables, and this, and this is probably it needs to be clarified, it does not mean putting a plate of mashed potatoes on a table. It's not like, here you go, here's some food, and then walking around another table to do it again. That's not what's going on right here. Serving, in this manner, it has more behind it the idea of administrating or organizing deep ministry to people who are in need. The ministry of hospitality hospitality is something that um, we've talked a lot about as a church in fact a couple years ago we did a series a short series during christmas time on what hospitality really was but if i were to put it in a sentence hospitality friends is nothing more than extending grace to outsiders seeing the needy and supplying the need the voice of hospitality says i will accrue a cost i will pay a price to build a comfortable place for you to come and have peace for you to rest. That's what hospitality says. And even as I tell you, it's got to feel a little bit familiar, right? We usually think of hospitality meaning having someone over for dinner, which isn't too far from the tree. I mean, think about it. You're accruing a cost to welcome somebody in a place where they can have peace and that they can rest. It's extending grace to outsiders. It says, I will pay the price. We actually see this lived out loud in probably one of the more hospitable acts that Jesus does in the Bible. One of the more, right? And it's going to be in John 13. Again, don't feel like you need to turn there because we'll have this up on the screen as well. But it is an important passage. And if you did want to write one down, this would be the one. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, because he just washed all their feet, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Here it is, key statement. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. An example? He did that as an example? Example of what? In washing dirty feet? what does that mean today? We don't really do that today. What does that mean? It means serving those around you, taking great cost upon yourself. It's just hospitality. We still have dirty feet today. I mean, come on. just looks a little different. The list is quite long. Dirty feet everywhere. People in great need, where it will cost us something to serve them, right? And this moment of Jesus washing feet as high of a bookmark as that is in his service of hospitality to us, to mankind, it merely points to a more thorough washing where he doesn't just wash our feet, but he cleanses our souls. You see this in Titus where he talks about the regeneration of our heart, the washing over. We see a deeper service. He served his close followers then, and he serves all of us now. By what? By washing our souls. It's a deeper service, a more thorough service to us. We see this in Mark 10, he talks about this a little bit. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus led us by serving us. By serving us. And now the church is being called to serve as an example and an image. It's pretty simple. Do you see, because I have to switch gears here, do you see that this passage is much more important than who got a pork chop and who didn't? Greek widows didn't get food and the Palestinian ones did. Fix it. It's quite a bit bigger than that. This is DEFCON 5 for Peter and John and the guys. This is why the seven leaders that they put in Those folks needed to be full of high character. They needed to be under the power of the Holy Spirit or under the control of the Holy Spirit. They needed to be wise. They had to have a killer reputation. They needed these things. Something else happened that's interesting here. Some of you pick it up too. Did you notice that the the apostles, the main leaders, they refused to fix the problem? They won't do it. They don't even speak to it. They just hand it off. And then they turn around and then they walk into their office and they shut the door pretty much. Does that seem a little cold to you guys? Growing up, I would read this and I'd think, oh my goodness, seems like you had like gloves and sanitizer around you when you said all of that. I mean, it just seems so cold and like not willing to do anything. This had to be a common critique. It had to be a big temptation for those leaders to just fix it. I'm telling you as a leader, whenever fires come up, my deepest temptation is just to put them out, not to delegate it off, Most leaders, they won't delegate something in the midst of a crisis. They'll do it after they have fixed the crisis to make sure the crisis doesn't happen again. They're doing something radically different here. Put yourselves in their shoes. Put yourselves in their shoes. Watching the apostles walk off and shut the door behind them. What is that about? Are you too good for us now? Are we like the little people now? What happened to Jesus washing feet and serving and the... the, the highest being the lowest. And what, what, what happened to humility? What's going on? You just handed that off? You know, I have to confess, one of my biggest failures thus far in leadership, whether it's Legacy or any of the other churches that we've planted or anything that we've ever started on the college campus, one of my biggest failures that I still struggle with is not delegating things off. Not doing it. There's two big reasons that we do this. One big reason is because leaders when their hearts are crooked they think that no one else can do it as well as they can do the quality is going to drop if they hand it off so they just won't hand it off but the second one the second one that's really a struggle is we risk the view when we hand something off and delegate it we risk the view of other people looking at them and thinking that they just don't want to have anything to do with service like they're not willing to serve they're not willing to clean the toilets anymore they're not willing to get out and do whatever it needs to be done anymore no leader wants to be seen as that person There must have been massive temptation here for them. Yet they're saying, we're not going to serve here. We're going to get seven others that will. Now, they're not saying that we don't want to serve here because it's not important. They're trying to stay in their lane. You see, the church had two primary needs right here. One is physical and one is spiritual, right? All the apostles are doing is they're trying to not swerve out of their lane. Preach, pray, preach, pray, Pretty simple and predictable. Preach, pray, preach, pray. They were doing a whole lot of that. Church is exploding. Why? Because they're praying and they're preaching. You want your pastors to pray and to preach. This is what's going on right here. But the church had physical needs too. They're not less important. In fact, the physical needs not getting done mars the picture of the gospel. The physical needs getting taken care of allows there to be an arena and an opportunity for spiritual investment. There's a lot. This wasn't B team they were setting in. This is most likely what would later become understood as the deacon office, right? Now, di- diakonos, which is the, the word underneath what we read as deacon, it's not even in Acts anywhere. In fact, it's only in the New Testament like two or three times. But the words that we read through just in that short passage, serving, distribution, ministry, weighed on, those words, the root word to that, it's the same as deacon, diakonos this is my opinion and i'm just giving you my opinion i think that these seven men represent a stage in the development that would later on be considered the elder office which is totally fine it's totally fine but it is probably a good place because of where we're at in the deep south the appalachian deep south to that um the word deacon has taken a beating right in the last two generations or so think about what's the first thing that comes up in your mind when someone says the word deacon as soon as I even started to say the word just now, some of you had memories growing up in a church, right? The deacon was the, was the pool of grumpy old men. They would show up late on a Wednesday night and cloister off behind a closed door and judge everybody. They're always sad. I grew up in a church not like that. I grew up in a church where there were no pastors. There were only deacons. You had one pastor. He was the dude that preached every week. He was the boss. And then you had the deacons that they kind of helped make decisions, right? Both of those examples are really bad examples. That's not what the deacon office is, okay? I'm going to leave it to two brilliant men to tell you what it is. Russell Moore, he defines it this way. He says, deacons organize servant ministry. He says, in order to equip the saints to serve and to ensure that the service being done results in the unity of the faith and advance the gospel. So they're removing obstacles. They're trying to ensure that there will always be unity and they're trying to ensure that the gospel always advances. Super big office. Super big office. Jonathan Lehman from Nine Marks, he says it even better, I think. He says, the deacon's attention is to the church's physical good, which in turn will serve the church's spiritual good. The deacon is a unity builder and a shock absorber. It's vitally important. What those definitions do, what the biblical meaning behind what a deacon is, it rips it out from behind the old wooden doors. It's not a wooden word anymore. It lives with us. It's with us. It's, It's accessible. It makes sense. Words are important. We use the word deacon and pastor all the time, and they're not even the same thing. They're very different. They're very different. It's important. It creates a culture when you use words correctly. Pastors are not the same thing as deacons. Deacons love the church by serving the church. Pastors love the church by steering the church, but it's both love and it's both service. It's both love and it's both service. And we actually see this lived out loud right in this passage, I think. Pastors are not varsity over the JV deacon squad. That's not what's going on. That's what it feels like is going on. That's our culture telling us how to read this. That's not what's going on. Okay, But if we were to scale out, I want to switch gears. No one wants to listen for 40 minutes on what a deacon is. But if we were to switch gears and just scale out and look at just serving each other, which is what we're seeing a church fail at, if we were to look at that, I think this is probably one of the most number one difficult things for a church to do. For a church to employ and nurture well is leadership serving each other, a church that serves each other. The difficulty is because most of the church simply struggles with taking responsibility for the mess around them, especially if it's going to cost them. Don't, don't feel spoken down to when I say that, by the way, because I'm with you. I'm sitting there with you. I'm being preached to as I say something like that. The healthiest churches in Knoxville, the healthiest churches anywhere, are not the ones with the tightest teaching and the best worship team, and the coolest website, not, not the healthiest church. The healthiest church is not the one with the most intellectual elder board, not the healthiest church. The healthiest church is where Joe Blow and the nosebleed section looks around and takes responsibility for the mess that's around him, even if he didn't create it. And he's teaching others to do the same thing. That's a healthy church. That's a healthy church. I hope you hear me in that. I mean, Listen, ladies, gentlemen, The healthiest church are the ones where we just stand and we say, It's on me. It's on me. That's what Jesus said. He took a mess that He didn't create, and I benefited from it. I take ownership in this. Whether it's in the world or here in legacy or wherever, it's on me. That's where health will be found. And listen, before Jesus did wreck me, I would see areas of service needed in the community or needed in the church. But I knew if it doesn't give me any glory, any identity, or any satisfaction, I will have a very good excuse, very handy. I will. I was a card-carrying 80-percenter, right? I'm referring to the Pareto principle. The Pareto principle means that 80% of your results derive from 20% of the constituency, and conversely, 20% of the people give 80% of the results. It's used in a bunch of industries, but it's definitely true when it comes to church service. I was firmly entrenched there. I was an 80 percenter. I would sit and I would say, I am not serving, not doing it. I'm actually quite comfortable on the fringe. I like this deal I got going on where I always show up late and I always leave early. In fact, you're pretty lucky if you even see me, just to let you know. But every once in a while, I would hear a sermon like this or read a passage or a book and I'd feel real guilty inside. For not serving like I needed to serve. Not serving the world, not serving the people around me. And then I would start to serve, but I would still hold a lot back. I'll serve, but I'll only give what's left over. And I'll only do it if you ask me. No, Beg me. You have to beg me repeatedly every week to do it. Then I'll do it, right? Only for a little while. Unless it's something I want to serve in. If it's something I'm really good and I want to do it, then I will do it because I'm gifted. Because I'm gifted, right? So you could tell I'm advancing and how I would think that out loud. I was a mess. <laughs> I was a total mess. You probably look at me up here and you think, no, yes. I was a disaster. And some of you are there now. <laughs> and you know what the 80% looks like. Because just like me. You were firmly entrenched there starving widows and dirty feet everywhere and the 80 percent is waiting for someone else to pick it up and here's the deal someone will pick it up you know what I mean metaphorically we're leaning up against the wall and we see the need but the 80 percent here's a secret for you if you're not in the 80 if you're one of the 20 percent here's the secret we know that if we just don't do it someone else will eventually If I don't pick that thing up, someone eventually is going to do it. If I don't go out and do that thing in the community, someone's going to do it because the need was announced and there's a lot of cool people in here. All I got to do is lean or maybe act a little busy or maybe really have a couple excuses ready. But if I can do that, someone will pick up the load. And here's the truth that's true. It's totally true. Someone will pick up the load. The 20% will come on in and pick it up. Ministry will still happen, the city will still be reached. The church will still tick. Everything will will work. Here's the deal. You will miss the opportunity. You will miss the opportunity to paint the portrait of the gospel with your own life. You're going to blow it. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss that calling on your life. You're going to deny it. God has called you. He's given you a gift. He's given you a place to fit in. He's given you a city to reach. (laughs) You're waiting for someone else to do it. I was here for way too long growing up, way too long. It's one of the biggest regrets of my life. I just wasn't a very good servant for a really long time. Once Jesus did wreck me with his service to me, the gospel picture to me, once that did happen and he took away my need to kind of guard my own little universe, once that happened, I started to serve. I started to show up and I started to serve. But here's the thing, I had a lot of growing to do still. My consistency was weird. I would do it two weeks and not the third, or I would be good for about 80%, 80% ironically, I'd be good for 80% of the work, but I was never the clutch guy. You could never count on me. You know, if you put me on a calendar, you'd have to wonder at the end of the day, is he really going to show up? (laughs) I mean, I know his name is there, and he did show up last week, or he did do this, or he he did show up and talk to someone in the city, or he did the laundromat, or what, I know that's true, but he's not really clutch, you know what I mean, not real consistent. I had that reputation. Not only that, my timing was bad. Always showing up late. Always leaving early. Always treating other people's time is much less valuable than mine. My attitude was horrible when I started to learn how to serve. I would always gripe about how other people were serving. <laughs> this is the hilarious thing. You were lucky to even have me there serving. And I've already got an opinion on how other people are doing it. And so I'm in this process where I'm judging others and I'm struggling with just even how I handle it. My excellence was bad. I would kind of like do the minimum and say, well, whatever, man. I mean, listen, it's not like you're paying me. I'm a volunteer here. I can always leave if you want. I'd just be leaving early, which I'm fine with because I'm that guy, you know. And so I was always growing in how I lead. Now, this is what the deal is. The Holy Spirit was helping me the whole time. Because I've always got the gospel as my mark. So I'm not serving so that people like me more, and I'm not serving so that I stop letting people down, because who wants to do that? I'm serving because I was served. The gospel is what changes me. The Holy Spirit sees and is in and is molding and shaping and changing me. I started working alongside other people who were great at serving, men and women who just crushed it, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for them. And one thing I've learned is there's two real divisions in how we serve. There's service that we extend to the city and to each other that drains us, and there's service that we extend to the city and to the church that fills. us. Service that drains us, service that fills us. I almost don't have to say any more than that. I use that metaphor all the time, by the way. It drives people crazy. It's just easy for me in my mind to think of filling and draining. But think about it. The service that fills us is the stuff that it might cost us time, talent, and treasure, but but we enjoy it. We actually like it. It's something that we enjoy doing, and it's usually because we're gifted in it. Not everybody can do it. It's a niche position. It's a skill position, right? So like Jeff was beating on the drums earlier. Listen, not everybody can do that. (laughs) I've seen people try that cannot, and it looks like a Saturday Night Live skit. Not everybody can do that. At the laundromat, I used to tell everybody, anybody can come and do the laundromat. We're just handing out quarters and handing out coffee. It's probably not totally true. I'm just telling you that so that you show up and do it. The truth is, is it does take a little bit of skill. They're folding their underwear, and you're trying to get to know them, and it's just a little sketchy after a while, you know? I mean, you have to know when to hit the brakes and hit the gas. It takes a little bit of skill. Teaching. Teaching's another way. For, for the people that it fills their tank, the people that are good teachers, because there's more bad teaching than good teaching out there, but the people that are good teachers, it fills their tank. No one's, you've never met a really good teacher that's like, yeah, I could probably do without that, take that off my schedule. No, they love it. Here's the thing about that. Everybody wants to do that. Nobody wants to do the service that drains their tank. Nobody. Now, this doesn't need to be a skill position. You just need to put a jersey on and go in and play any position. You don't have to be skilled. You are just needed. Right? We have those in the city. Y'all notice there's not a whole lot of people kicking and screaming and clawing after each other to cut in line at the soup kitchen to serve. It's just not happening. It's not happening. We're not, we're not fighting over each other to relate to those who are living on the streets right now. <laughs> you don't have to be skilled at that. He's got to love people. Working with addicts, working with kids that only have one parent, if they're lucky, you just need to be present. You just need to give. That's just in the city. What about here? I love the ops ministry. The ops is a great example of this. Ops is what sets everything up. It's what makes it from a school to a church, right? They do it in a relatively short amount of time. But come on. I mean, but listen to me. Seriously, it's boring, isn't it? For those of you at ops, I mean, we've got like triple PhDs that smash atoms and build rockets and they're threading curtains on and like handing, putting things on the chairs. It's, it's boring. They're just, they got a jersey on, they're in the game. Why is that important? Because it creates an environment where people will feel welcome. It creates an environment where ministry can and does happen. J- to children's ministry, the kids community is another great example, right? I mean, ladies, come on, ladies. They're screaming kids a lot of times, right? They're other people's kids. It's hard enough just working with other people's kids. Many of you who have done it here who are moms, you've got a chocolate bar today. I mean, come on. That's not what you deserve. You deserve like a chocolate factory for what you do back there where every day chocolate bars are brought to you through your back door. Little Oompa Loompa comes with a chocolate bar and hands. Always a great attitude. That's what you deserve because that's hard. I've done it. I can count on one or two hands how many times I've served working with kids in the children's ministry. It is brutal. It's hard. It's not a skilled position, though, and it definitely drains the tank. But it creates opportunities and moments for ministry to happen. It's beautiful. The church needs both. So the, not so that we look good here. The church doesn't need both so that Sunday morning looks cool. The church needs both, those draining the tank and filling the tank so that the church is healthy, just so that we're healthy for the city, for we're healthy for ourselves. We need both. So that when the city looks on, it sees a church loving and serving each other, not a church where everybody sits and a hired professional does all the work and does all the service. That's what they already think is going on, by the way. You ask your average person out there. They think the pastor does everything. It's called paternalism. The pastor does everything. They're always at the hospital, always in the living rooms, always in the middle of everything, and no one takes their place. They're like the mini-god of the church. The church doesn't really serve each other. The pastor has to break his neck at serving everybody else. That's definitely not healthy. But that's what the culture thinks. Why do they think that? Well, because they have good reason to think that. They have great reason to think that. So I'm going to finish with some application and there are a few different groups. I'm breaking up the application today because I just think there's, there's different groups in here. We do have some who are serving nowhere but do want to. And I'm talking about serving the city, serving each other. However you want to say it. I'm not putting parameters on it. You don't serve anywhere but you want to. And I would say thank you and just insert yourself somewhere. Get in. Get in the game. Well, Luke, how, how will I know when I'm serving enough? When it costs you and you notice the cost. And you notice what you can't do because you are doing that thing of service? You're having to say no to other things so that you can do the one thing that is called service? That's how you know when you've done it enough. How do I know what to do? Well, this is a good thing. I love this. I love sitting with people and going through this exercise. They don't like it, but I do. Luke, I think that we, we need this. There needs to be a little bit more of this going on. Why don't we have this working a little bit better? And then the smile starts to creep up on my face. As I say, you know what? We were just talking about that. We were just looking for someone that had a conviction that was deep enough that could help us lead that. You sound like you might be that person. Here's the response, inevitably. Well, I, I don't think that's me. I think I was just making sure that you knew about it. I was just making sure that you guys were aware that this was a need. Where do you see something that needs to be done in the city? Where are you frustrated that that no one is moving, that no one is doing anything? Could it be that the Holy Ghost in his brilliance is breathing that conviction in you so that you would serve? It's a wild guess. I'm just saying that could be it. Same thing here. Legacy would be a better church if it just did fill in the blank. Now listen, we're all ears. We are all ears. We'd love to see, not just here but in the city, It needs to be brought to us, though, if it's something here or in the city. You notice Peter didn't just intuitively know that people were not being served. Someone told him. Someone told these guys. So there's those who serve nowhere but truly want to, and then there are those who serve nowhere, and that's because they don't really want to, right? Now listen, the application for you is going to sound oddly like it did last week, and I feel it's because you don't really understand the gospel. Last week we talked about investing treasures in giving. And those who struggle with giving, they usually don't really have a good conception of what the gospel has done for them. They're not really free to do it. This is why if you're struggling with that, that's why you struggle at work too. That's why you can't forgive people as well. All of those things are things that we do well when we get the gospel. Otherwise, they're things that we do to meet our needs. I give so that it brings me glory. I work so that it helps me. I forgive because I want to feel better about myself. And it all ends up pointing right to self again, right? But when the gospel takes root and you see in the heavens crack and you understand the price paid and the trade made for you to live by the grace of God, full of the Holy Spirit, when you see that, you are free to serve each other. You're free to do it. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So my application would be Look at the gospel. You might need to get saved. You might need to become a Christian. Jerry Bridges says, the only safe evidence that we are in Christ is a holy life. And I agree with him. It's the only evidence. is a holy life. A life where we are spending ourselves serving, forgiving, loving. Listen, there's some of you in here that serve heavily. Thank you thank you. Legacy Church it could not exist without you. It could exist without me. It can't exist without you. Thank you. Because if this church disappeared, the city wouldn't notice an absence because of the preaching. It would notice the absence because of the service that emanates from this church to the community, to Knoxville. That's how it knows. The city needs you. This church needs you, and you have answered. So I'm just saying thank you for being consistent, for being timely, for being wise, for being excellent, for having a good attitude, for treating it with care, for using it as an opportunity to show what Jesus looks like for people that might not know just by reading it off a page. Thank you. Here's my challenge. Why are you doing it? This is where I challenge myself. Motives are of vital importance. Motives behind why we serve are important. It actually makes a difference between an offering that is valuable to the Lord and an offering that is worthless to the Lord. We see that a little bit in Cain and Abel. If you go back and read in Genesis, they both give offerings, but one is accepted and one is rejected. And I think whenever I serve the city or I serve you, but I'm really doing it for me, I don't know that it smells as good as an aroma to the Lord. My motives are mixed up. I think motives also make a big difference between serving in joy and burning out. When people burn out in service and they just tap out and they say, I'm done. I'm ca- I can't do this anymore. This thing that I've been doing every month or every week or every what, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. Seldom is it volume, the amount of time that they serve. Sometimes it is and they're just broken because they're just doing it way too much, right? That's, in fact, that's a big thing in church plants because we have such, such a small amount of workforce. But most of the time, it's what is behind the work. Overworking is not so much the volume, it is the work behind the work. Why are you doing it? What are you trying to secure in your service? Are you trying to get a better identity? Are you trying to get another thing to check off your list so that you feel a little bit more comfortable in sermons like this? <laughs> Why are you doing it? If you're doing it for any other reason besides the joy of what God has done for you, you will eventually get burned out. It might not happen today or tomorrow. It could happen in a year or two, but you'll get burned out. Most of burnout comes from overworking, from working behind the work, from our motives being screwed up. So that's a challenge for you. And then my last, I think, would be those of you who need to be served. There are those of you in here that don't serve, those who do serve, and those who need to be served. If you need to be served, I would say look in three directions. One is look up. Mankind cannot meet the need that the Lord supplies. We can, we can attempt it. But God is truly the one that supplies what you really, really need. And you secretly know this. And this is why you keep getting let down. People have let you down. People have burned you. And it's because you're not looking up. You're always looking sideways. You know? People will meet my needs. People will fix my problems. I have need. I have pain. I have addictions. And we look laterally, but we never look up. We never look vertically. I'm telling you, mankind, you're not going to meet a pastor smart enough. You're not going to meet a church big enough, cool enough. It's not ever going to happen. God is the only one that will, change, that will change you. The Holy Spirit is the only change factor in our lives. I'd say after looking up, look sideways, look left and right. Why? Because it's, it's you serving each other. It's super common in the South, not as common in some of the other places that we've been, but in the deep South especially. Whenever someone has a need, they immediately go to the pastor. An email goes to the pastor, um, a text goes to the pastor, or if not a pastor, then at least a leader in the church, one of the pastors. Um, or a deacon or something like that, we we feel like we have to go up with our knees. We have to go up. Usually when I get those emails, usually when I get those conversations or texts, I will ask the question, and try me and see if I don't do this, I will ask the question, who are you in community with? I'm just curious. If they're not in community with anyone, then they've really jeopardized themselves. They put themselves in a place where there is no mutual ministry and no service of each other. and right That's a big fracture then that's the least of their problems. There's a little need right there. But if they are in community with people, we want to groom believers to know that we get our ministry from each other. We pastor each other a lot. Sure, we step in and we handle big things. And sure, we do step in when there is a need for it. But once again, the healthiest church is where we serve each other. The healthiest church is not where a few dudes do all of the work, right? So it's the application. Now listen, there's a lot I did not hit today. I didn't hit why um, there's no ladies in this passage. Did you notice that? Seven dudes. But we think that ladies can be deacons all day long. I, I think it's beautiful. I think there's actually more opportunity to have more female deacons than even guys, especially in churches like this one. All right? I don't really have time to teach that, but if you want to know more about that, you could text it in on our text line, and we'll try to write up a blog on that real quickly right? Or the fact that the church voted in their deacons, and we don't do that today either. That's why you guys have never voted for a deacon. Notice that. We do it a little differently. These are things I didn't have a time to teach on today, but if you want to know, you can text it in, and it'll help us gauge your interest enough to know to even spend the time putting something like that down. But until then, go ahead and stand up with me. We're going to shut this down. What's important for you to know as we go into worship is that our king served. Our king served, and he built a church that serves. He built a church that serves. Man, I would have loved to have spent more time talking about that scene at the foot washing. What that must have looked like. Peter saying, no, 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 no. Don't touch my feet. It's not because he had janky feet. It's because he just would have broke him down. Friends, listen, we had a king wash our hearts, which were even dirtier than our feet. Even dirtier than our feet. If Peter feels like he wasn't worthy, I definitely feel like I'm not worthy for that. will not you? Here's the punchline. You weren't. We weren't worthy for that. That's why it's a gift. That's why it's grace. That's why it's amazing. That's why it's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love and your kindness. God, I thank you that you're a good servant. Lord, that you served us on earth and you, you did things and you didn't just tell us to serve. You showed us what it looked like. You're so brilliant in how you did that. But then you showed us that all of those little acts of services, that the, the healings and the feedings and all of it, Father, was just to point to an ultimate service an ultimate service where you laid yourself low that you out of hospitality created a place for us to be welcome and to rest father you were hospitable to us our hearts echo is only to say we want to be hospitable as well hospitable to the widows among us to the widows in the world to the orphans among us, to the orphans in the world, to the dirty feet around us, to the dirty feet in the world that we would serve. Show us, Father. Show us where to insert ourselves. Show us where to be busy. Show us where to put a jersey on and just get in the game. Show us where our gifts come in and we need skill positions. Show us all of that, Father. But show us especially that what drives it all is the fact that we have been served. You are so good and you're such a good king.